The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's passage comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 54 through 13, 9. Please stand for the reading of God's word. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had come, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he came to the vine dresser, and he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sit, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, cut it down then. Please sit. Have a seat. God's word. A little bit more, our text is going to go all the way down to verse 21. So if your finger is in your Bible there, just notice how it continues in verse 10. Uh, I asked Don to stop there at 9, so I could, and I'm going to pick it up in 10. Notice that Jesus continues. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman. And this woman had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, Listen, everybody, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. 
He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, you might be looking at these verses and it feels like it might just be a random hodgepodge of Luke going, man, I've got some things in the bag that I need to talk about Jesus. And he's like, bing, 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 bing. He's just throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and hoping it sort of sticks. But I'm here to tell you this morning that Luke has told us that he is writing an orderly account to the man named Theophilus. And so this isn't random hodgepodge things that he's hoping will stick just concerning Christ. He is leading us to see this, that this morning there are two paths that we will find ourselves on as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the sermon title this morning. Our sermon title this morning is Two Paths. And the reason why I'm calling it Two Paths is because if you wanted to summarize all of these various interactions of Christ and distill it down into one sentence, one main idea, we could say this, that Jesus is leading us to see that we are on path one or path two. We are either those who read the signs that Jesus is who he says he is, and we thus repent and turn to him, or we are those who reject the signs in unbelief. And the question I think Luke is leading us to ask is this, which path am I on? Which path am I on? Am I those, am I one who reads the signs concerning Christ and repents? Or am I one who rejects the signs in unbelief? Which path am I on? So we're going to pause. We're going to pray. We are going to Ask the Holy Spirit to empower the preaching of the Word, and then we're going to dig into our text. So let's do this. King Jesus, we are here to see you glorified. We are here to see you magnified. And it's in your name we pray right now, asking you to come and inhabit the preaching of your Word. When you prayed for us in John 17, you told us that the Word is truth. And we are sanctified by the truth, the truth of the Word of God. And this morning we confess we need that sanctifying work of the Word of God to lead us deeper, further, ever collapsing into not just the Word of God, but the God of the Word. And so Holy Spirit, move. Open our eyes to see and to have hearts of compassion as we wrestle with the question, which path am I on? King Jesus, it's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. Two paths, which path am I on? I want you to, to lay hold of that two-path dichotomy, that two-path difference. You see it all over the Scriptures, but if you have that lens... Um, sort of over uh, your mind's eye, I want you to listen to these words from the Scriptures and listen for this two-path difference. These words from Scripture go like this, Blessed is the man 
who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, as you might know, these words come from Psalm chapter 1, a very famous psalm which has this two paths difference right on the very surface of this psalm. And if you are listening to those words that I just read to that lens of the two various paths, then you will have clearly heard the psalmist make this distinction between the blessed man who is pursuing the living God and the wicked man who says, I want nothing to do with the things of God. And as a matter of fact, this two-path distinction that we see in Psalm 1, it actually just shows up all over the Scriptures. We find it on the lips of Joshua, the successor to the man Moses, when at the end of Joshua, he's standing before the people of God and he gives them this invitation. Today, you need to choose whom you will serve. Are you going to pursue the lowercase g, gods of Egypt? Or are you going to pursue the capital case g, the living God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords? Which path are you on? Choose this day whom you're going to serve. Again, we find this two paths difference in the various psalms, just like the psalms we just read. Fast forward into the Gospels. Jesus often laid out this two-path difference in his teachings to the crowds and to his disciples. He teaches that there is a wide gate that leads to destruction versus the narrow gate that leads to life. Which path are you on? asked Jesus. There's the wise man who builds his house on the rock versus the fool who builds his house on the sand. Which path are you on, asks Jesus. And in our present section this morning, from the end of chapter 12 in the Gospel of Luke through chapter 13, verse 21, in a section that is filled with Jesus talking about weather patterns and court cases and the brutality of a man named Pilate and parables about fig trees and a woman who's doubled over because of a disability, mustard seeds and a pile of bread dough. You just look at it and go like, like, what is Jesus after here? And what does Luke want us to see? Stitching all of these seemingly random things together, what you need to see is the two path difference appears once again and when you stitch these things together the golden thread that's woven together is the question that presses on anyone who hears about Christ considers Christ examines the life of Christ tries to wrestle with who Christ is and what he came to do is the two path question which path am I on don't forget that last week at the end of the verses that we were reading there in Luke, Luke chapter 12, verses 48 and 49 and following, Jesus has plainly said to those who are listening to him, you guys need to know this, says Jesus, I have come to cast fire on the earth. And we said Jesus making that reference to the fire that he's come to cast is the fire of God's judgments. He is bringing the fulfillment of the Scriptures right before the faces of people. And we will be held accountable for what we know, says Jesus. 
And we will be measured against the bar of that standard. Before Jesus are two groups of people. Ever since the beginning of chapter 12, Luke has seemingly gone out of his way to remind us Jesus has been talking to disciples. He's been talking to those who are followers of him. He's been talking to those who are believing in him. But also on the periphery of these disciples are people, a, a group of people that Luke has just been referring to as the crowds. The people who are also seeing the exact same things that the followers of Jesus are seeing, but people who are just keeping their distance. They're keeping this arm length, stiff armed. Yeah, we see what you're saying. We understand what you're, you're doing. We are grasping it with our senses, but for whatever reason, they are refusing to come to Christ. And it's these crowds who find themselves in danger of God's just judgment because despite the plain evidence before them, despite having witnessed Jesus' life, despite having witnessed His teachings, despite having witnessed His miracles, the crowds, the men and women who are witnessing all these things, Luke told us back in Luke 11 that it's these category of people who continue to say, but we need more signs. We need more evidence. And until Jesus ponies up, until Jesus comes and does what we want him to do, meets what we think we need in order to repent and believe, we're going to continue to stiff arm Jesus. And if you remember that Jesus used that opportunity to roll into the teaching that you will have a sign, but the sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, if you remember. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and came come blowing out, Jesus is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. And the resurrection, that is going to be like the final sign of signs. Yes, you have the sign of who I am. You have the sign of my teaching, the sign of my miracles, the sign of my actions, the sign of my pursuit of God. You have all these things, but the sign of signs that will be the final sign that you need is the fact that there is no Palestinian grave with the bones of the man, Jesus Christ. Which path are you on? Which path are you on? In the estimation of the crowds, they see, they hear, but they are drawing the conclusion, you know, there's just not enough evidence to, to buy into this whole Jesus thing. To repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we, we need more signs. And so what Luke is leading you and what Luke is leading me to see and do is that Jesus engages the crowds. Luke is decidedly, noticeably telling us Jesus is shifting his attention from those who do see the evidence and are following Christ to those who equally see the evidence but are making the decision to not follow Christ. He's shifting to the crowds. And with deep compassion, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of their heart that is leading them to see and yet remain unbelieving. And with great compassion, Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy so that they might rightly read the signs and repent. That is point number one. Point number one is the path number one. There's an invitation here for, for those who are wrestling with the things of Christ, the crowds, to come to path number one, to read the signs and to repent. So 
Where do we see this at? We can see this starting in your copy of Scripture, verse 54, Luke chapter 12. Follow along with me here as we read these first couple of verses. Notice how Luke writes. He says, He, Jesus, also said to the crowds, Listen, guys, when you see a cloud rising in the west, what do you say? You say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say this, there will be a scorching heat. And guess what? It happens. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Notice that Jesus is calling the crowds here to read the signs and act appropriately. That's what you're going to see here with this language regarding these, uh, the culture or the weather outside and this little parable that Jesus gives concerning someone having a lawsuit brought against them. He's inviting those who are hearing and listening and observing Christ to read the signs and act appropriately. Again, it's very, very important to understand that Jesus is not talking to his disciples right now. It says right there in verse 54, he also said to the crowd. So he's turning his attention to those who are seeing yet saying, I don't know that there's enough evidence to draw right conclusions concerning who Jesus is. It's those men and women who are refusing to accept Christ's call to deny self, pick up cross daily and follow him. Now, for a multitude of reasons, you have people in your lives, I have people in my lives, for any number of reasons, they could list out on a piece of paper, people look to Christ and they demand signs from Christ. They stand back and they hold Jesus at arm's length and they refuse Jesus until Jesus does something dramatic to prove themselves, to prove himself to them. I, surely you have people in your lives like this. Yeah, I would be all about the Jesus thing if Jesus fill in the blank. Crack the midnight sky open, ray of sunshine lit, favorite song plays on the radio when I asked him to do it, certain key verse, certain person shows up in certain ways, or whatever it might be. I'm not trying to be facetious here, but all of us know people who say, yeah, I would be all in if Jesus did this thing to prove himself in a very real way to me. But, says Jesus, according to these verses here, there is no further evidence needed for you to draw the right conclusion concerning who I am. You need no further song, signs to rightly respond to me in repentance and in faith. And the proof that this is true, that the crowds need no further signs, need no further evidence to draw the right conclusion, is that Jesus says in every other area of life, you have the ability to read the signs and draw right conclusions. I know you guys know how to do it. For the crowds, he says, they can look to the west and they can see a cloud on the horizon and they can rightly deduce, that, that sort of looks like a rain cloud. And I think here in probably a couple of hours, that's going to hit us and it's going to rain. And he says, you've read the signs and it happens. You, you guys know how to do this. 
Or he says you can go outside and it might be early morning, but you feel that stiff, warm breeze against the back of your neck. And you go, man, that feels like a breeze from the south. And when the breeze blows in from the south, that means a hot air front, a warm air front is moving in. Today is going to be a scorcher. And guess what? It is. You read the signs. You read the evidence. It takes place. You guys prove you know how the ability to draw right conclusions concerning these things. Thus, Jesus looks at them and says, there is hypocrisy in your heart. You are a hypocrite then. And your hypocrisy to the crowds is that you know how to read signs. You know how to draw right conclusions. In a modern day setting, you might pull it forward and say this, you rightly pride yourself on your ability at work to analyze data. You are the premier cruncher of the spreadsheet in the office. Your boss can come to you and say, here's 30,000 pieces of paper, and you can whip it up, throw it in a spreadsheet, and get it done. You know how to gather data and create reports and truncate it down and draw a right conclusion. You know how to go to ESPN and break down your favorite football stats and all the data that came in from last night's game. You can read the opinion polls and dissect them and draw a conclusion. You can scrutinize your financial report. You know how to draw right conclusions. But your hypocrisy, says Jesus, is exposed when you read the signs concerning me and you say, yeah, there's just not enough evidence to draw the right conclusion concerning Jesus. It's not that you can't interpret the signs. It's just that for any number of reasons, you, you won't. You just stiff arm. Dig in your spiritual heels. Thus, the call to act appropriately. That's what Jesus does when he rolls from those couple of verses concerning the weather patterns in the sky and then rolls into this little parable, this little illustration about someone being drugged before uh, a magistrate, a judge, and someone's bringing a lawsuit against them. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying, listen, just like you know how to act appropriately as it relates to reading weather patterns, you know how to act appropriately in order to settle your account before a judge, before it's too late. That's what Jesus is after, this acting appropriately idea is what he's after when he's talking about this court case idea in verses 57 through 59. Jesus says, here's, here's the invitation. Be like the one who made an effort to settle with his accuser on the way to the judge. A lawsuit has been filed against you, let's say, and you have two paths to travel in this moment. What am I going to do? The implication, I think, of the text is you are guilty of the charge being laid at your feet. Are you going to stiff arm the guy and go before the judge? And if you go before the judge, rightly guilty, and the lawsuit is found to be true, you are the guilty one. You're going to be on the receiving end of what you justly deserve, and you are going to pay what you owe. Or you could do this. You could seek to settle your account before the judgment comes. And you could seek to make it right before the judgment comes. You can stand before the judge, be found guilty, pay the price, or you can settle your account now while the window of opportunity is presenting itself to you. In everyday life, people know how to respond in a situation like this. If it's path one, stand before a judge, be found guilty, and pay the penalty for my crime, or the window of opportunity comes to make the situation right, to settle the account so that I graciously don't have to pay the full price of what I owe, every one of us can read the doubt and go, uh, you settle out of court, thank you very much. Jesus says, you know how to do this. 
You don't dilly-dally. You don't waste time. You settle your account while the window of opportunity is there, while there is time. You don't waste it. You judge what is right in this moment, and you act appropriately. If you go into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, the author writes this, that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We live, we die, and then we stand before a living, pure, holy, can have nothing to do with sin, just judge of all the earth. Abraham tells us in Genesis 18.25 that God is the just judge of all the earth, and He will do what is right. And if you stitch these truths together with the invitation of Jesus saying, listen, read the signs and act appropriately, He is inviting us to see that if we sinners step before the bar of God's judgment with our spiritual account unsettled, if we step before the bar of God's judgment laden with the debt of sin that is rightfully ours, it will be too late in that moment and we will pay the full price for what we owe as sinners standing before a holy God. Thus, roll into chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 and 6 through 9. Jesus is going to teach us that the right action in the window of opportunity that every sinner has as it relates to hearing Christ, seeing Christ, engaging Christ, witnessing Christ in the Scriptures is to repent and don't delay. Repent now. Do not delay. Settle your count, as it were, with the living God because the window of opportunity will not always be there for you. Repent and don't delay. Appropriate action looks like repent today while it's called today. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Case in point, look no further than murdered Galileans and the 18 who were crushed by a tower. I think that's the connection here. From Jesus go, hey, check out weather patterns and think about lawsuits. And hey, did you guys hear about that whole pilot murder tower falling on people kind of thing? You're sort of like, oh, what's the deal here? Luke is serving you and me right now. He's stitching these realities together so that we can see something, that right, appropriate action in the window of opportunity that God has given us to settle our sin debt before a holy God is to repent now while today is called today. Do not delay obeying the command to repent. That's what he's saying right now. Luke tells us there, look at chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present in the midst of that crowd who I think just got done reading the morning news, apparently. And the local headlines in the paper were about some Galileans who are apparently worshiping, probably down in Jerusalem. And as those Galileans were worshiping, Pilate murdered them, apparently. Their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. 
Jesus responds to them like bringing up this current day event. And he says, listen, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Scan down to verse 4. Jesus says, if you think that's a humdinger, what about this? What about those 18 who went to work that day, probably construction workers who were just hanging out trying to build the tower in Salome, and apparently these stones from the tower fell and crushed them, killed them, went to work that day, didn't come home that day. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? If you're like, yeah, that's a little archaic. I mean, I'm not in worry. Uh, I don't wake up fearing being killed like by a Roman uh, official. Like, I'm not building any stone towers in, in Salome. I think Jesus could just as easily said to a more contemporary crowd like us, well, what about those multiple thousands who died when the twin towers fell and crushed them? Do you think those New Yorkers were worse sinners than anyone else? Or he might say, like, you guys were all paying attention to the news last week. What about those seven who were killed in the I-55 dust storm pilot? Got on the interstate to cruise into Springfield, and seven of them didn't make it. Were they worse offenders than everyone else because they're the ones who died and others didn't? See, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's making a point overtly about repentance. The fact that Jesus verbatim repeats himself in verses 3 and 5 and highlighting the phrase, unless you repent, what Jesus is doing in highlighting these things is he is helping us to consider what it looks like to repent today while today is called today and to not delay repentance. See, Jesus is basically saying to them in so many words, listen, you guys are up in arms about the circumstances of the deaths of these people, but here's what should have your attention. What should have your attention is this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, the question that I was wrestling with this past week as I was considering this text and trying to to tease it apart so that way I could come and preach God's word was to ask the question like, Well, likewise perish how? He says, in this way also, you will perish. You're going to die. And I'm like, well, how will we die likewise? How will we perish in like manner? And I don't think it's this. It's it's not likewise perish in that one day you and I will die like they all one day died. I, I don't think that's quite it. It's true. We've been talking about this. Jesus has been talking about this for the past several weeks right now. All of us has that little invisible countdown timer above our heads, and there's a zero at it somewhere. Our days are numbered. They have minutes, hours, seconds, months, years attributed to us. I don't think Jesus is saying, yeah, their countdown timer hit zero. Your countdown timer is going to hit zero. You're going to likewise perish. That's a truth, but I I think Jesus is making a bit of a finer point. I think it's this. It's likewise perish in that if you do not deserve, observe the evidence now. That if you don't observe rightly the signs that point to salvation in me right now, if you 
Don't make an effort to settle your sin debt with God, your judge, now. That if you don't obey the command to repent from sin and turn to me now, then you will likewise die unprepared like they died unprepared. You will likewise die undiscerning like they died undiscerning. You will likewise step before God, the judge, with your account unsettled. Because you just assumed, ah, tomorrow. And then you get up and you merge onto I-55 and you head northbound and you don't come home. The window of opportunity will close. And that's why Jesus goes into the fig tree parable. There's a truth here that Jesus wants us to see that we don't have to be unprepared to meet God our judge. We don't. Extreme kindness. He's given you the opportunity to repent and believe. Today. Now. Not to say, Jesus, prove yourself. Jesus, do this. Give me 10 more signs. Give me 12 more pieces of evidence. No, Jesus says the fact that what we celebrated back in April is that I am not a bag of bones in a Palestinian grave, but I have defeated the grave, and I blew out of the grave, and I've crushed Satan. I've crushed sin. I've crushed death. I am the resurrected Lord Christ King. That is the final piece of evidence you need to come and repent and believe in in me, which path am I on? That's the invitation that Jesus is giving right now. We can be prepared by taking advantage of the present day opportunity to repent from sin and turn to Jesus for salvation today. In his second letter, the Apostle Peter wrote this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. But here's what the Lord is. He is patient toward you. Amen? He is patient toward you. He is one who does not wish for any to perish, but here is where He is at. His wish is that all should reach repentance. Second Peter But as the fig tree learns in the parable, there is a limit to that very gracious patience. Do you see what he says there in verse 9, chapter 13? If it, it being the fig tree, should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, it will be cut down. Remember that owner comes back and he's like, I've got a fig tree orchard, fig tree, grove. How come this one isn't doing it? Year one, I came, no fruit. Year two, I came, no fruit. Year three, I came, no fruit. The owner says, let's, nu let's go nuclear on this thing. It's done. It had three years opportunity to re repent from its lack of fruit, so to speak. And the vine dresser, the, the gardener comes and he's like, like, let's just root up some soil. Let's throw some, some fertilizer on it. Like, let's, 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 one more year, Jesus is weaving into this idea that the Lord suffers long. 
The Lord is not just waiting on pins and needles for you to mess up. So we can go, gotcha. You messed up. Gotcha. Long suffering. Very patient. But patience will have an end. There is coming a day where you will either die and stand before the bar of God's judgment or the king of kings will come riding back on the clouds, tattoos on thighs, sword out of mouth, bringing just judgment. Listen, the riches of God's kindness, the riches of His forbearance, the riches of His patience are not so we can say, yeah, repentance. No, the kindness, says Paul in Romans 2, the kindness of God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance. To repentance. This is path number one. Are you on this path? I think that's the question, the invitation that Luke has for us this morning. Are you one who has read the signs and repented? Are you one wrestling with this? If you're wrestling with this, the invitation is to come. To read the signs. Listen, you can't logic your way into heaven. Understand what Jesus is not saying. Jesus isn't saying just make some observations and crunch some formulas on a piece of paper and like, boom, you're into heaven. He's not saying that you can logic your way into heaven. But what he's saying is this. You can reason. You can logic your way into the place where you say, I must cast myself on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. I can read the signs and come to see I am a sinner. I can read the signs and come to see that as a sinner, I am not right before a holy God. I can come and see and read the signs that as a sinner not right with God, just judgment is coming for me. And if I stand before a holy God as a sinner with my sin not covered by the righteousness of Christ, I will bear the full brunt and weight of the righteous wrath and judgment of a holy God. That, I, I see this and I understand this. What you don't do is then say, by logic, I'm in. What you do is say, this logic leads me to the only reasonable conclusion. I must cast myself on the Christ. And the Christ is in the business of saving sinners who come into the conclusion that my only hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I have no other pardon. I have no other plea. It's found in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Path number one. Is this the path you're on? It leads us to this then. If you are not on path number one, I think Luke shows us that then you find yourself on path number two. There's no like middle, mysterious, unobservable third path. It's either on path one or path two. You're either reading the signs and repenting or you find yourself rejecting the signs in unbelief. Verses 10 through 21, a lot more simply and a lot more quickly. Just notice this, that path number two is illustrated. The difference between seeing and believing Versus seeing and unbelieving. It's illustrated in the life of the woman who is healed versus the ruler of the synagogue. That's what Jesus 
is doing here, and that's what Luke wants us to see. Verse 10, now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. Jesus sees her. He calls her over and says to her, woman, you are freed. That's a sermon in itself right there. You are freed. Freed from your disability. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. So on one hand, what do we have? We have this woman who stands as a witness of what it looks like to be on path number one. This is a woman who sees and believes. Luke tells us that Jesus sees her, heals her, sets her free from Satan's bondage. She becomes a God glorifier. Path one, direct contradiction. Opposition to path number one. You see the ruler of the synagogue who sees and does not believe. That's verses 14 through 17. Just imagine, here's the ruler of the synagogue. Right before him is a sign that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus stood up in this Nazareth synagogue, pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and begins to read and says this, when you see these things happening, sick healed, lame made to walk, blind made to see, then what you need to know is that the Savior who is coming to bring in the fulfillment that all the prophets have been longing for, he is here in front of your face. Jesus does this right in front of the man. And what is he? Indignant. Hey, there's six days for work to be done. Get out of here and come back on Monday, thank you very much, and get your healing. That's his response to to seeing this. The fulfillment of the scriptures were playing out before him. Yet the woman set free from Satan on the Sabbath reveals just how deeply his soul was in bondage. Caring more for ox and donkey than this daughter of Abraham, (coughs) his hypocrisy, which blinds him, proves that it's very possible to see and yet not believe. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is in the business of opening blinded eyes. Amen? That Jesus is in the business of welcoming and receiving sinners who read the signs and rightly conclude, I must, I must turn to Jesus if I am to be declared right with God. I must. And it's as Jesus hears the cry of repentant sinners and saves him, notice that this is how the kingdom of God grows. That's verses 18 through 21. What is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? Grain of mustard seed, the man takes, plants in his garden, it grows huge, becomes a tree, birds of the air make nests in its branches. He says the kingdom of God is also like leaven, yeast, that a woman takes and shoves into the dough that she's making. And that little piece of yeast, what does it do? It permeates everything until the entire lump of dough is leavened. He's like, that's what the kingdom of God is like. Like a seed that starts small but grows huge, this is the kingdom of God. Like leaven hidden in dough which quietly and secretly permeates the whole batch, so is the kingdom of God. One, listen, one repentant sinner at a time, one word of God hungry, one prayer dependent, one hypocrisy fighting, one God fearing, one self denying, one cross caring, one sign reading, Jesus following disciple at a time. This is how the kingdom of God grows. It seems innocuous. It seems small. It might seem like nothing in our lives. But when we pursue Christ and we grow in Him, this is the slow Mostly overlooked, 
little moments of grace over a long period of time that the kingdom of God grows and spreads and grows and spreads and grows and spreads. It seems so unimpressive, this kingdom of God. As everyday disciples quietly submit to Jesus in a way that is initially unseen, receiving Jesus and following Him. However, Jesus says, while it may not appear impressive, this is the way my kingdom grows to supernatural proportions. And praise God that it has nothing, nothing to do with the strength of men. And it has everything to do with the might of Christ our King. The kingdom grows not because I'm your pastor. The kingdom grows not because you're phenomenally intelligent. The kingdom doesn't grow because of any attribute that we bring to the table. The kingdom grows because Christ the King grows His kingdom. And it's dependent on Him. I'm thankful that in God's providence that it was these verses that landed on the Sunday before I head into sabbatical. I love you guys. A lot. Pray for you much. Care for you deeply. I think there's a microscopic ounce of what Paul felt in Colossians when he says, man, like, I, like I'm in birth pains over seeing Christ in you grow deeper. I think I've felt that to some, some, some measure in my past 10 years. I'm thankful to be reminded that over the next three months, the church will happily continue on without me. <laughs> that the kingdom will happily continue to grow without me. I need to be reminded of these things, and I'm thankful that you get the gift of being reminded of these things. I've sought to run for 10 years, pastoring, leading, shepherding, sacrificing, serving. Some others are going to do it for the next three months. And my hope is to come back rejuvenated and rested to, to run at it again for the next so many years. My hope is that over the next three months, the conclusion that's drawn is just simply this. Christ is a Savior. He's in the business of saving sinners. And we can cast everything on Him to see His kingdom grow. Grow deeper in our lives and spread out wider into our communities and our neighborhoods. And I'm just begging Jesus to do some really, really cool things. Well, my family goes and, and takes the precious gift of rest that you guys have afforded us to come and take, okay? I love you guys. Notice on a day that we're talking about judgment, repentance, apparently the, the AC chose not to work just to make us squirm a little bit, right? It's a little warm in here, a little sweaty. At least I am up here. I don't know. Was the Lord doing something? Maybe not. So thank you for bearing with us through that. Okay, so let's pray. Christ, thank you for being the God who's in the business of saving sinners. Lord, would you do this? If there's someone here present today to say, yeah, if there's like a two-crowd or two-group two distinction, like the disciples and the crowds, like, yeah, I'm, I'm probably among the crowd, to be honest. Lord, if someone is here today, would you just bring them to the place where they examine the evidence, read the signs,
And then that leads them to cast everything at the foot of the cross, looking to Christ alone for salvation. That is the command that you give us. The command to repent is to read the signs and draw the conclusion, I must be saved by Jesus, and then make a beeline to Jesus in order to be saved. Lord Jesus, do these things for your name's sake and for your glory. Speed along the ministry of this church here over these next three months. We do this so that in due time we would just be many men and women who are a part of uh, just seeing you move and seeing the kingdom of God grow. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.